Hello and welcome to the Best Chosen Language, a podcast where we bring the human element to your writing with the help of Jane Austen. My name is Janine and this is episode one, creating a Petri Dish Conversation. So to unpack the title a little bit, what's in a Petri Dish? Culture, of course. And Jane Austen is particularly a good writer for this case because she brings so much of the world in which she was living and a pure dissection of the characters she sees, um, what I'm assuming is on a daily basis and just of human nature in general, um, to her writing. She, I, I definitely believe that Jane Austen is of an anthropological bent when she takes on a lot of her works and in particular, Sense and Sensibility, which we'll be talking more about today. First, I'm just going to give you a little intro on my background and the idea behind this podcast. Uh, so I am a longtime writer and Jane Austen fangirl. I uh, am currently working on a fantasy story, and I thought this would be a really good way to create fun writing prompts because there will be a writing prompt at the end of each episode and parsed out literary techniques from a work that I think more people should be able to enjoy. Uh, for uh, full disclosure, I'm going to try and steer away from the chiclet analysis of Austin that she gets pegged with, especially a lot of the Mr. Darcy um, kind of fangirls, although that's totally perfect. If you're one of those, we can just talk more about uh, how... Uh, her characters, men and women, are viewed in society and just more about the social status and economic status of uh, characters in the books. Also, a little fun anecdote about uh, my love for Jane Austen. I used to, I got into Jane Austen in middle school and I borrowed my mom's anthology of Jane Austen and I used to carry it around with a rolling backpack. So, you know, I was the cool kid in school and I'd carry around this huge anthology and everyone thought I was this great reader because I carried around this, I don't know, it was, it, it was a book that was like two Harry Potter books long because it was filled with all of Jane Austen's novels. And I was only reading Pride and Prejudice at the time, but everyone was so aghast that I was reading this huge <laughs> anthology. So... I'm definitely a legitimate lover of both Jane Austen reading and writing. So to dive right into Sense and Sensibility, let's begin with the plot for those of you that haven't read it. We will also be spoiling this uh, centuries-old book, so you can skip this if you want to let it be a surprise if you want to read the book. But to start off with... Uh, There's two protagonists in the story, Marianne and Eleanor. They're both sisters, uh, and they are of completely different personalities. Uh, But their family, uh, first off, has fallen on hard times. Their brother, Mr. John Dashwood, is supposed to leave them this fair fortune after uh, their father dies. But unfortunately, Mr. John Dashwood is swayed by the greedy views of his wife, Fanny, uh, into giving them nothing and just kind of loving them in everything but action. He's always telling them how much he values them and giving them really backhanded advice. So 
Definitely not a nice guy. Mary, uh, um, Marianne, as the younger sister, uh, kind of complicates their circumstances because she's definitely a younger sibling stereotype in the sense that she's very headstrong, very passionate, uh, does what she wants, really heedless of the consequences. Uh, she thinks Regency-era manners are really restrained and insincere. She has all these romantic views um, circa the Regency era and just the um, romantic movement in general. She ends up falling in love with a man um, named Mr. Willoughby, and he turn. Uh, he seems to be this passionate gentleman that matches her for every sentiment and every favored work. Uh, she has a love affair with the poets Cooper and Scott in just the love of their books, not actual uh, love affair with them. But uh, uh, Willoughby is set to be her official leading man, and then he all of a sudden, with uh, with very few words to her, he drops out of her life, and when she sees him again, he's already engaged to a woman purely um, because of financial means. He just needs to engage himself to a wealthy woman to get into better financial circumstances, and of course, he couldn't marry Marianne because her family is poor, and they're just, and at this point, they're just scraping by the gentility rank so uh, a lot of things that are luxuries like carriage um, uh, or just ordinary facets of Regency life like carriages or meat, they have to really scrimp and save for. Eleanor, on the other hand, really understands this and especially understands her circumstances because she's a more of a practical bent. She's definitely the caretaker of her, uh, her family because their mother is similarly flighty in the same vein um, as Marianne. Uh, Eleanor, however goes against her practical nature to fall in love with Fanny's brother, Edward. And Edward is set up to be the typical heir to his family's fortune. Uh, Mrs. Ferrers, Edward's mother, Edward and Fanny's mother, has, is really an imposing figure in the book. And she is, he's entirely dependent on his mother's fortune. And she might even write Edward out of the will if he doesn't perform the role of an eldest son to her specifications. They even have a great line in the book saying that his family wanted him distinguished as they hardly knew what. They're just solely pursuing uh, the emptiness of status and wealth. So, uh... This seems to, even though they're a little bit of star-crossed lovers, this seems to go well until Eleanor finds out that Edward is secretly engaged to another girl named Lucy. And Lucy uh, is really jealous, typical mean girl character. And she is trying to assert that Edward is wholly in love with Lucy, even though Eleanor knows, based on the opinions of herself, uh, Fanny and her mother, that that's simply not the case. And a lot of Edward's relatives are actually put on the alert once they know that they've seen Edward's behavior toward Eleanor because he's showing all these signs when he's not supposed to be interested in uh, this slowly uh, Eleanor as just a lowly gentleman's daughter with really no hope for uh, advancement in terms of status or wealth for that matter. 
So, uh, in the end, each kind of learns the opposite's nature a little bit. Marianne is able to focus her passions and gain a bit of practicality. She meets this man um, in the book a little bit before Willoughby, actually, called Colonel Brandon, who she finds out shares her passions without being explicitly passionate and she's able to marry him more out of gratitude than undying passion but in the sense they're able to build a really stable and secure life together which you wouldn't have had with Willoughby just because there are these two clashing passions and Eleanor is able to show more of her emotions with Edward and in the end that's what gets Edward to finally propose to her once Lucy is dealt with and off the market and um, de-engaged from Edward. So the first thing we're going to do is analyze a few scenes from the book and really parse out the strategies Austin uses to encapsulate the cultures of her characters through both the dialogue and technique of the characters and the situation of the characters. So the first scene is with Eleanor and Marianne. It's very short, uh, mostly like two paragraphs. Uh, and it's Eleanor rebuking Marianne right after uh, she, uh, Marianne meets Willoughby for showing too much emotion uh, when she's with Willoughby and just being a little bit uh, too fixed with her attentions in typical Marianne fashion. Well, Marianne, said Eleanor, as soon as Willoughby had left them, for one morning I think you have done pretty well. You have already ascertained Mr. Willoughby's opinion in almost every matter of importance. You know what he thinks of Cooper and Scott. You are certain of his estimating their beauties as he ought, and you have received every assurance of his admiring Pope no more than is proper. But how is your acquaintance to be long supported under such extraordinary dispatch of every subject for discourse? You will soon have exhausted each favorite topic. Another meeting will suffice to explain his sentiments on picturesque beauty and second marriages, and then you can have nothing farther to ask. Eleanor, cried Marianne, is this fair? Is this just? Are my ideas so scanty? But I see what you mean. I have been too much at my ease, too happy, too frank. I have erred against every commonplace notion of decorum. I have been open and sincere where I ought to have been resolved, spiritless, dull, and deceitful. Had I talked only of the weather and the roads, and had I spoken once in ten minutes, this reproach would have been spared. And that's the end of it. Again, it's really brief, but I chose this pas uh, this passage to give light to Marianne's feelings on civility. So when I first read the book, I <laughs> was really dissatisfied with Marianne's character, I, especially, I think, for a modern reader. In my opinion, it's really hard to get behind these uh, antiquated notions of uh, romance. Uh, I mean, I can understand the whole first uh, no second attachments thing uh, that she has. Apparently, Marianne believes that you can only fall in love once and second attachments don't really happen. But 
the whole, like, you have to express every emotion possible was really hard as a reader for me to connect with. And a lot of these actions actually make Marianne selfish and insensitive to desires of uh, characters around her, such as uh, people in her social set that are really trying to help her that she just doesn't like anymore. So, um, because she thinks that they're trying to gossip about her. But, um... Or even when Eleanor is um, going through her uh, is hurting because she realizes that Ed- Edward is engaged, uh, Marianne just completely doesn't realize, uh, doesn't understand the strength of Eleanor's emotions, and it, it really makes her act selfish um, in respect to her sister. And I guess that's the prerogative of a younger sibling. But what's really interesting is after a close read of Marianne's behavior, this can be explained as a coping mechanism for the restraints on just women's characters in general and just people in general in society at that time. So as a passionate, uh, open, really vivacious person, Marianne is forced just by basic rules of politeness to be sedate, calm, and kind of bury the lead in terms of what she thinks um, and make uh, and make everyone else's opinions higher than her own because as a younger woman and as uh, a woman with really no financial means, she should be catering to the ideals of others. And in response to this, Marianne is saying, no, I don't appreciate uh, these ideals. I don't appreciate the laws of courtship where that say I can't express my emotions I think that's insincere and I and that completely goes against my moral code so she understands civility in a sense that sometimes the book or sometimes her actions don't seem like she does but I think she understands it in the short term like the behavior itself is abhorrent to her so she totally rejects it and she has this unbearably high moral code that she's trying to adhere to but she's also with this kind of rejection of what a regency or a woman should be she's creating in a sense her own world you can see this in other scenes where she breaks off to play the piano and that's going to come up a little bit later that she's really creating a safe space for herself in and and practicing agency through these seemingly like uh, random bouts of passion and uh, and this succumbing to her emotions. Something that's also relatable to more 21st century fiction, um, or just even if you're writing historical fiction in um, current times, um, is that manners and social contracts exist in pretty much any world you can create as an author. And they still exist today in 21st century society. So a lot of how Marianne, as I think she's 16, a 16-year-old girl is supposed to behave, there are similar rules for 16-year-old girls in society today. And you can see that imposed through dress codes, through uh, TV shows, through movies, just through, through style magazines. If you read Seventeen magazine, you can get a sense of what the ultimate teen girl is supposed to be. And I think that it's important to understand that 
in the, in the way to build your world and create characters with this ideal person of their age, um, their social status in society, and keep that in mind. Because at the end of the day, they're going to fit into it in, a, and also be distanced from it. Marianne, as a character, she fits into it in the sense that she does go to these parties and she is able to move in society. And even though she does offend people, she has to play the game enough and meet people that she doesn't necessarily want to meet, like um, like uh, Lady Middleton's sister or keep staying with one of the women that chaperoned um, Eleanor and Marianne to London, even when she doesn't want to out of politeness. And she does these things. Be, and, and she's nice to people because Eleanor wants her to, and she's extracted, um, and Eleanor's extracted a promise to her, um, from Marianne to be nice to certain people and uh, not exhibit too much emotion. And she does these things both out of her, um, in this case, out of a love for Eleanor, but also an out of just basic social preservation. She has to live her life in the way that she knows how, and this is what's being presented to her. Even though she does have these strong romantic ideals that contradict a lot of these notions, sometimes she must play the rules, play by the rules. Another thing that's really important in this scene is the speaker itself. This rebuke is coming from not just anyone or like a random person off the street. It, it's saying, be more ladylike, Marianne. It's coming from Eleanor, who's a most beloved sister. Marianne has a high respect for Eleanor, and this is really developed throughout the book. She basically will do most anything Eleanor tells her, and Eleanor is always able to talk Marianne down from her high flights of fancy. And the fact that she's able to rebuke her, even though Marianne essentially completely contradicts her and won't always listen to her, it shows that this set, this, these set of social rules and the social contract between um, how men and women should act towards each other and express romantic interests are really deeply ingrained in society in order for Eleanor to feel the caution of that and want to express this caution and even though later in the conversation, uh, their mother says, oh, well, Eleanor was just joking. I think even in jest, this is a definite caution for Marianne because Eleanor does feel this very strong, um, this very strong danger in Marianne's open feelings, especially to Willoughby and to gossip that comes out of her associating with Willoughby, uh, Marianne associating with Willoughby so freely. And this does ruin Marianne's reputation. And Eleanor is right in the sense that it does ruin Marianne's reputation and Marianne faces a high social cost for it. So now we can move to the next scene, which is between Lucy and... Eleanor, Lucy has just told Eleanor about her secret engagement to Edward, uh, who they refer to as Mr. Ferrers because they're in polite society. But Lucy is um, making a, a basket and is wrapping these like tin papers 
for um, a basket for one of Lady Middleton's uh, children. Lady Middleton is the the hostess of this party that Eleanor and Lucy and Marianne are at. Um, and this scene is a good example of the coping mechanisms uh, with society in general, but also just generally uh, how... Eleanor and Marianne are able to cope with the loss because Eleanor here has just found out that Edward can no longer love her as he, as she has wanted him to. So she has to take that upon herself and figure out what she's going to do. And she really takes the moment to see where both Lucy and Edward stand and what are the terms of their engagement and get all the facts before she lets herself dive too deeply into any emotions. So definitely a data collection method um, or mission here. Lady Middleton proposed a rubber of casino to the others. No one made any objection but Marianne, who, with her usual inattention to the forms of general civility, exclaimed, "'Your ladyship will have the goodness to excuse me. You know I detest cards.' I shall go to the pianoforte. I have not touched it since it was tuned. And without further ceremony, she turned away and walked to the instrument. Lady Middleton looked as if she thanked heaven she had never made so rude a speech. And then, skipping forward a little. Perhaps, continued Eleanor, if I should happen to cut out, I may be of use to Miss Lucy Steele in rolling her papers for her. And there is still so much to be done to the basket that it must be impossible, I think, for her to labor singly, for her labor singly to finish it this evening. I should like the work exceedingly if she would allow me a share in it. Indeed, I shall be very much obliged to you for your help, cried Lucy, for I find that there is more to be done to it than I thought there was, and it would be a shocking thing to disappoint dear Anna Maria after all. "'You are very kind,' said Lady Middleton to Eleanor. "'And as you really like the work, "'perhaps you will be as well pleased to not to cut in for, till another rubber, "'or will you take your chance now?' "'Eleanor joyfully profited by the first of these proposals, "'and thus, by a little of that address "'which Marianne could never co- condescend to practice, "'gained her own end and pleased Lady Middleton at the same time.' Lucy made room for her with ready attention, and the two fair rivals were thus seated side by side at the same table, and with the utmost harmony engaged in forwarding the same work. The pianoforte, at which Marianne, wrapped up in her own music and her own thoughts, had by this time forgotten that anybody was in the room besides herself, was luckily so near them that Miss Dashwood now judged she might safely, under the shelter of its noise, introduce the interesting subject without any risk of being heard at the card table. In a firm though cautious tone, Eleanor thus began, I should be undeserving of the confidence you have honored me with if I felt no desire for its continuance or no further curiosity on its subject. I will not apologize, therefore, for bringing it forward again. Thank you, cried Lucy warmly, for breaking the ice. You set my heart at ease by it, and I was somehow or other afraid I had offended you by what I told you that Monday. Offended me? How could you suppose so? Believe me, and Eleanor spoke it with the truest sincerity. Nothing could be further from my intention than to give you such an idea. 
Could you have a motive for the trust that was not honorable and flattering to me? And yet I do assure you, replied Lucy, her sharp little eyes full of meaning, there seemed to me to be a coldness and displeasure in your manner that made me quite uncomfortable. I felt sure that you was angry with me and have been quarreling with myself ever since for having took such a liberty as to trouble you with my affairs. But I am very glad to find that it was only my own fancy and that you do not really blame me. If you knew what a consolation it was to, for me to me to relieve my heart by speaking to you of what I am always thinking of every moment of my life. Your compassion would make you overlook everything else, I am sure. Indeed, I can easily believe that was, it was a great relief to you to acknowledge your situation to me, and be assured that you shall never have reason to repent it. Your case is a very unfortunate one. You seem to me to be surrounded with difficulties, and you will have need of all your mutual affection to support you under them. Mr. Ferrers, I think, is entirely dependent on his mother. He's only two thousand pounds of his own. It would be madness to marry upon that, though for my own part I could give up every prospect of more without a sigh. I've been always very used to a very small income and could struggle with any poverty for him, but I love him too well to be the selfish means of robbing him. Perhaps, of all that his mother might give him if he married to please her, we must wait. It may be for many years. With almost every other man in the world, it would be an alarming prospect. But Edward's affection and constancy, nothing can deprive me of, I know. That conviction must be everything to you, and he is undoubtedly supported by the same trust in yours. If the strength of your reciprocal attachment had failed, as between many people and under many circumstances it naturally would during a four years' engagement, your situation would have been very pitiable indeed. Lucy here looked up, but Eleanor was careful in guarding her countenance from every expression that could give her words a suspicious tendency. Edward's love for me has been pretty well put to the test by our long, very long absence since we was first engaged, and it has stood the trial so well that I should be unpardonable to doubt it now. I can safely say that he has never gave me one moment of alarm on that account from the first. Eleanor hardly knew whether to smile or sigh at this assertion. I am a rather of a rather jealous temper, too, by nature, and from our different situations in life, from his being so much more in the world than me, and our continual separation, I was inclined enough for suspicion to have found out the truth in an instant if there had been the slightest alteration in his behavior to me when we met, or any lowness of spirits that I could not account for, or if he had talked more of any one lady one lady than another, or, or seemed in any respect less happy at Longstaple than he used to be. I do not mean to say that I am particularly observant or quick-sighted in general, but in such a case I am sure I could not be deceived. All this, thought Eleanor, is very pretty but it can impose upon neither of us. But what, said she after a short silence, are your views, or have you none but that of waiting for Mrs. Ferrar's death, which is a melancholy and shocking extremity? Is her son determined to submit to this and to all the tediousness of the many years of suspense in which it may involve you rather than run the risk of her displeasure for a while by owning the truth? If we could be certain that it would be for only for a while. 
But Mrs. Ferrers was a very headstrong, proud woman, and in her first fit of anger upon hearing it, would very likely secure everything to Robert, and the idea of that, for Edward's sake, frightens away all my inclination for hasty measures. And for your own sake, too, or are you carrying your disinterestedness beyond reason? Lucy looked at Eleanor again and was silent. Do you know Mr. Robert Ferrars? asked Eleanor. Not at all. I never saw him, but I fancy he's very unlike his brother. Silly and a great coxcomb. So, as I mentioned before, this scene works really well to show the different methods of coping between not only with a lost love, but also with society and uh expectations on what a woman a woman's role should be or just what how people are expected to behave in terms of civility and as you can see Eleanor is really shady in this scene she is throwing she is reading Lucy like a book to use a RuPaul term uh and there's a lot of coded language Rereading that scene, what I was really struck by is almost every phrase is an insult. Oh, of course you don't have any deceitful motives. Oh, if your affection had failed, of course that would be very pitiable. So you can see that Eleanor is rebuking Lucy for all the the kind of um, jealousy that with which she's laid claim to. Edward, even though Lucy essentially has won by being engaged to Edward and Eleanor can't do much about it, she's saying, kind of like, back off, Lucy. Um, this is, you're not going to impose upon me by just constantly, um, I mean, she does, Lucy does take advantage of the secret and impose upon Eleanor, but I think Eleanor's uh, kind of drawing her ground and saying, you know, I have a slight claim to Edward, too. And even though the scene doesn't appear to pass the Bechdel test, it, it appears to be two women gossiping about a guy who's also a shared love interest, I think it also shows how Eleanor copes with her limited role in society. You can see, um, especially the narration from that uh, first passage describing what Eleanor uh, has has done. She gained her own end and pleased Lady Middleton in the bargain, while Marianne completely rudely just said, oh, I'm going to play the piano forte. Hope you're okay with it. Um, and went right along to playing the piano. And it also shows, I, I think this is no mistake, that Austin juxtaposes this narration uh, with Eleanor craftily inserting herself to this social situation that's very uncomfortable for her and having setting up the two rivals working towards the same end, Eleanor is playing the game while Marianne is creating this insulated space for herself. She doesn't even notice that anybody else is in the room because Marianne herself is so engrossed in her feelings. And this definitely is a coping mechanism throughout the book, especially music for Marianne. She plays it after Willoughby leaves. And I, I think it creates a sense. It, I think it's tied to Marianne's sense of self and a sense of something that really brings her joy. And even though she doesn't like a lot of typical things, like she tells Lady Middleton, like, I, you know, I never do cards. And she 
dislikes forced social interaction so much, even though that's principally what the society is composed of. So there's not really that much for Marianne to choose from, but she's able to create joy by um, isolating herself in this space of music and something she's very passionate about and something she's kind of, I think, in the sense, doing what athletes do or maybe even, I guess it's more comparable to artists, like that kind of what I describe as an acting high, like when you're on the stage and you're just totally engrossed in what the character you're doing and if someone asks you to describe it, you really can't describe what you just did because you're just thriving on the energy from your audience and your own kind of desire to perform. And I think Marianne has a lot of that when she plays uh, these famous concertos. Eleanor, on the other hand, is able... And I think one difference about Eleanor and Marianne in terms of their strategy is Eleanor, possibly because she's older and possibly due to her practical, um, really, uh, by-the-book nature, she's able to see the benefits of civility long-term. She's able to work out these strategies for not necessarily manipulating people, because I think that's too harsh a word, but for getting what she wants in a sense, even though a lot of this dialogue ends up causing Eleanor pain, she's able to collect data and um, from the conversation, see what stat- see what Lucy's excuses are for still being in a relationship with Edward, see where they're standing with um, Mrs. Ferrar's approving of the match, and gauge how much of a real relationship this is and how and if Lucy is really infatuated with Edward or if she isn't. And uh, Eleanor later just comes to discover in conversation that Lucy really isn't infatuated with uh, Edward. She's just keeping a, in, a, in an engagement with Edward just purely for, she, uh, Eleanor presumes it to be status, um, reasons of status, because his family is so rich. Also, in terms of cultural motivations, Lucy's behaving how she thinks a fiancé should act, um, and just a woman in general should act, completely sucking up to Eleanor without hazarding an opinion, constantly asking Eleanor for her opinion. I think she, uh, Lucy is also trying to be a little bit manipulative in her own way in trying to see what Eleanor will say if she thinks uh, Lucy and Edward should continue with their engagement. But in trying to catch her at uh, admitting that she uh, Eleanor feels for Edward. But... I think it's also that she's trying to create this image of a devoted lover, and that's just really this humble little mouse that won't, um, that just loves him so much, really impractically. And it's very similar to the picture Marianne is sincerely creating. Uh, so that juxtaposition of Marianne's true love, which is followed by Lucy's fake love, she's just tr- trying to describe it as this very great love, but Eleanor can see, based on Lucy's actions, that Lucy wouldn't have had to lay claim um, to Edward if she didn't perceive Eleanor as a threat. Um, It's also just going down to brass tacks here, a culture where they can't speak openly. 
the romance rom- matters of the heart, gossipy matters are um, really not openly discussed. A lot of gossip, even though gossip does happen in this book, um, Lady Middleton's mother um, is a huge gossip, but it's often checked by Lady Middleton herself, who's a really proper woman. So just having a knowledge of what is expected in your society. Can they talk openly about romance and engagements? And especially because this is a secret engagement, um, it, it shows the value of the status in society, which is going to be explored in um, a little bit in the next scene as well. This next scene, it takes place at a dinner for uh, Lady Middleton and her family that um, uh, Fanny throws. Uh, and so she and Mr. Dashwood, um, Mr. Dashwood uh, Eleanor and Marianne's half-brother, um, they are the hosts of this grand dinner where Eleanor finally is able to meet Mrs. Ferrers and they are completely damn they, as in Fanny and Mrs. Ferris, are completely dead set against Eleanor and really are very mean to her throughout the course of this dinner. Uh, and it starts off with uh, words from Mr. Dashwood. And John Dashwood also is passing um, Colonel Brandon some painted screens of Eleanor's. These are done by my eldest sister, and you, as a man of taste, will, I dare say, be pleased with them. I do not know whether you have happened to see any of her performances before, but she is in general reckoned to draw extremely well. The colonel, though disclaiming all pretensions to connoisseurship, welcomely, um, warmly admired the screens, as he would have done anything painted by Miss Dashwood, and the curiosity of the others being, of course, excited, where they were handed around for general inspection. Mrs. Ferrers, not aware of their being Eleanor's work, particularly requested to look at them, and after they have received the gratifying testimony of Lady Middleton's approbation, Fanny presented them to her mother, considerately informing her at the same time that they were done by Miss Dashwood. Mm, said Mrs. Ferris. Very pretty. And without regarding them at all, she returned them to her daughter. Perhaps Fanny thought for a moment that her mother had been quite rude enough, for, coloring a little, she immediately said, They are very pretty, ma'am, ain't they? But then again, the dread of having been too civil, too encouraging herself, probably came over her, for she presently added, do you not think that there is something in Miss Morton's style of painting, Mom? She does paint most delightfully. How beautifully her last landscape is done. Beautifully indeed, but she does everything well. Marianne could not bear this. She was already greatly displeased with Mrs. Ferrers and such ill-timed praise of another at Eleanor's expense, though she had not any notion of what was principally meant by it, provoked her immediately to say with warmth, "'This is admiration of a very particular kind. What is Miss Morton to us? Who knows or who cares for her? It is Eleanor of whom we think and speak.' And so saying, she took the screens out of her sister-in-law's hands to admire them herself as they ought to be admired. 
Mrs. Ferrers looked exceedingly angry, and, drawing herself up more stiffly than ever, pronounced in retort this bitter philippic, "'Miss Morton is Lord Morton's daughter!' So don't get distracted by my spot-on impression of Mrs. Ferris. So on a first level, we um, we what's being said in that rejection? She um, first off, Eleanor doesn't measure up to um, who Fanny and Mrs. Ferrars would pick, and they and uh, Eleanor won't be accepted for acting quote unquote above her station. Uh, so there's mismatch, not just of character, but status, due to their praising her abilities. That's basically marriage market value. Um, and that's why they uh, talk up Miss Morton, because Miss Morton... And, and that's also why that bitter philippic means so much. Because, I mean, I'm sure to Marianne, she's like, whatever, she's a lord's daughter. Who could care less? But... Um, she obviously doesn't admire Pope and Scott as they ought. That's what Marianne's probably thinking. But, um, uh, I, what Mrs. Ferrers means by it is she is this highly respected woman. How dare you accuse her talents? You know, she's not just anybody. And she's implying that Eleanor is due to her, um, lack of, um, funds for uh, lack of uh, a dowry and lack of just standing in society due to um, her um, due to her family's um, rank. I mean, I guess she's the half-brother, so she's not too lowly, but again, that um, the lack of fortune rates huge, especially to uh, the Ferrer's family. So, um, Going even deeper into, um, in, um, or I should say broader, we can see that this isn't a fluid society. There's only a few avenues to gaining social consequence and, um, in terms of women's lives, a limited economic power. Um, and women don't manage or create their own wealth. They have to either inherit it as, um, or uh, be born to it as clearly Mrs. Ferrars has, or even attain it through marriage as what they think, um, the Ferrars family thinks Eleanor is trying to do with Edward. And we can also see that there's a huge contrast between narrow-minded, status-conscious people with the good-hearted, um, um, duo of Eleanor and Marianne. Because even though, uh, status-wise, um, and money-wise, Society is set up to admire Mrs. Ferrers and admire Edward and his family just on purely basis of their wealth and their um, standing in society um, in terms of the family name. They they also, um, th- th- you can't buy Mrs. Ferrers and a fanny of personality. It, they the, all their status does nothing for how they appear to the reader. They appear like these shallow harpies who are are just are, are totally dismissing Eleanor when she's clearly the best option they have if he's going to sink to the manipulative Lucy. Um, so definitely, as a reader, you're rooting for Eleanor in this scene and being like, "Gosh, guys, give her a chance." So uh, they're set up to be dislikable characters and somewhat, in, and to a degree, the villains of 
this book because they're throwing all these obstacles in the way and they're just really being petty about the match. So are the characters behaving according to their gender or their socioeconomic status? This is questions we can really ask ourselves as writers for our own characters and also see through the lens of Austin's characters. We can see through Marianne and Eleanor that the answer is both yes and no. As women, they're expected to be confined to these non-academic roles, living these life of leisure, visiting all these women, but uh, Marianne's passions allow her to subvert this timid Regency-era woman and Eleanor's understanding of society and keen sense for observance and practicality really allow her to use the rules of civility for her own ends. And even though she's not, uh, even though she faces, I think, a little bit, she feels a little bit more the pangs of restriction than Marianne does, she's also able to be somewhat the more, the more better off of the two because she doesn't throw herself into this immense sickness like Marianne does, both in terms of love sickness and also legitimate sickness. Marianne gets sick later in the, the novel. We, um, we can also see um, Edward in the book as well. As I mentioned before, his family has high claims on him as... Uh, to be this distinguished heir in society, and this really burdens him. He Edward is hard to like as a hero, in my opinion, even though he's like the shy, kind guy, kind of like the Hugh Grant without the... Uh, I mean, I guess he, and he literally is Hugh Grant in the movie adaptation, but he's definitely the Hugh Grant trope of the shy guy that secretly got this charisma. But I didn't see that from the uh, Edward in the book. Uh, however, he's really burdened by his his the expectations placed upon him. So he's not behaving according to his socioeconomic status, and in his want to be um, his desire to be a clergyman actually is going against the fam- his family's wishes. And as um, and when he is relegated to um when he's disowned by his mother it actually makes him happier because he doesn't have the societal expectation placed upon him um and Jane Austen has this really lovely afterward that I think is too long for this podcast but it's definitely uh a, a nice little epilogue for the book about how Edward is so happy because he has made the decision um to marry um Eleanor and go against his family's wishes and subvert the expectations of status. So, uh, in conclusion, I believe Jane Austen is really saying that status, while providing a lot of fiscal and social benefits, can also be incredibly restrictive, especially with um, when you consider the rules of politeness and civility, and it is really this dance that I think Jane Austen understands it so well and portrays it exceedingly well in throughout her books. And as writers, I think we can do this by basic analysis of the society we live in today. And I'm going to go over two uh, situations as examples um, in a 21st century throw forward. So if we can just time travel to the present a little bit. Uh, and recognize that 
all of the social claims on these characters, these exist in modern society. People feel that they, they have to prove something, you know, if you're of the Silicon Valley set, you might want, feel like you have to be in tech. If you, uh, if you, um, or if you are a member, like, of a wealthy family, you might feel like you have to uphold the family fortune or go into the family business, um, as the typical, uh, K-drama trope where the guy is taking over his family's business and he, and there's uh, often a lot of conflict with that. And so, uh, taking that, um, taking it away from tropes, we can see, uh, the ritual of social interaction, um, even in something so casual as an introduction. So, for example, I'm going to give them all names so that they're a little bit easier, uh, to track. So, John is introducing Mary to Susan. So, there's an obvious connection between John and, um, and John and Mary, because John's the one introducing Mary um, to the third person, which is Susan. So, are John and Mary going out? Are John and Mary friends? Is John the host of the party? That's why he's doing all the introductions. Uh, and so, how will that make Susan feel if they're a couple? Will that make her feel kind of excluded? Is she really happy for them as a as a couple? Um, just that response can kind of give you a feel on who she is as a character and if the social rule is being upheld. For example, many people would want to have a connection with Mary, the person being um, introduced. So maybe Susan can give her a compliment or uh, a note that they have a familiar school or interest in common. Or um, they can, um, or Susan might even expect like that Mary's going to be really socially at ease and just say, oh, hi, I'm, I'm Mary, so nice to meet you. So if Mary's a little awkward, how is that gonna, how is Susan gonna think of her? What kind of impression will that have, um, on, um, her character? And, um, for example, if your characters don't perform this, like if Mary, uh, if Mary's a little bit awkward or kind of, like, goobery about her introduction, like, uh, if she goes overboard and be like, oh, hi, it's so great to meet you. And, 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 and it is too overboard or too under, or too shy and retiring. What, um, that will go against the typical introduction, um, conventions. Or if Susan is straight up rude by ignoring her or doing a Mrs. Ferrer's and being like, oh, yes, nice to meet you. Totally. And then totally turning away. How is that going to reflect on the conventions of introduction and the social contract at play here? And also on a broader scale with the portrayal society. If you're as an author trying to say, oh, the saddle conventions are great, you might want to have uh, some pl uh, play with them a little bit. And um, Or even if you're trying to say, oh, maybe there's a better way we can treat people uh, through introductions or through we can uh, treat certain types of people. An introduction is a good way to kind of play out characters because first impressions are such a big deal for people in general. So if you want to say something about the convention of being introduced or the formality of an introduction in general, it might be good to have your characters go against that 
because then that's calling attention to the social rules at play rather than if they just went along and it, it's just like your character walking down the street and notices it's a sunny day and then it's a good day. Like, there's nothing to that story. But if your character walks along the street and someone else spits in their face and they go, what the heck just happened? There's a conflict. So that ma- that calls it the reader's attention to that moment. So just using um, characters to kind of break social rules and call attention to particular moments um, or work through social conventions but in different ways to call attention to moments. A lot of times Jane Austen's characters don't actually break, completely break social rules like Marianne. They might just break them like Eleanor by eventually falling in love with like uh, Edward or in a modern equivalent, they might eventually have a career that's against their parents' wishes or a career that doesn't really suit their degree or something like that. Something that's against their traditional path or what the society values. And this could even be applied to a futuristic society or a fantasy society. It, as long as you set up those social conventions, um, this is very key. And one another situation where it's very easy to set up co- um, social conventions is a formal setting. So if you think of an office setting, uh, most everyone <laughs> can relate to this um, because I'm sure most everyone has been to an office or seen the show The Office. So uh, we have a good glimpse into this. So for example, a meeting in an office. This um, can this incident can often be framed in terms of framed in terms of hierarchy. So that can that's shown by who's speaking, who's not speaking. Even in a regular social situation, who's speaking and who's not speaking is very key to the social dynamics at play. But especially in an office meeting, because who's speaking and who's listening? Like who have if if someone has most of the airtime, unless they're just a really annoying talkative character, that person's probably an important person. That person would most likely be a boss or someone like high level management. Um, that that's being able to talk so much with. Um, presumably a little consequence. So someone's talking and, for example, a boss asks for clarification. If that, how is that boss received? That could show more, uh, shed more light on that boss's character. If that boss is hated, maybe they are received well at face and then talked about, um, they're uh, gossiped about at the water cooler. Like, can you believe Mr. So-and-so did that? Oh my gosh, that's so crazy. Um, or, and, and that could be a good juxtaposition of someone having high professional status but low social status in their group, which would probably be key for them to get anything done as a boss. So um, this could, all, if they're also well-respected, how could that look? Could that be everyone sitting silently? Could that be everyone uh, participating and them really stretching the limits of um, the speakers and, and providing a good uh, kind of background um, support for the speakers. So it depends on what type of personality the boss has. If they're a Steve Carell boss, that's going to be like in the office. Or if they're a more um, managerial, softer, supportive type of boss, um, that would look very different. Also, another thing to note is where's the formal or the casual in your scenes? And how do the social rules reflect the distinction? So a more formalized um, scene or setting will have more restrictive social rules. A lot of times readers, uh, as readers, I'm sure, 
we think um, of the Regency era as very formalized, but it's actually in specific settings. I'm sure most people with their family would behave very differently than what you think of as the typical Regency era dance scene. I mean, in a dance scene, literally their movements are being controlled with social etiquette because you have to move in a certain way to make a dance happen, especially the Regency era dances where you kind of were pro- uh, you learn the dance, not programmed with, hopefully no one's a robot, and Regency era times. Uh, you were you were able to learn the dance and then perform it, and that's just part of social etiquette training. Uh, so for uh, to bring this full around to the 21st century, in an office, you're socially trained to sit at a desk for eight hours a day or uh, speak in meetings a particular way. I mean, you would never run up and down an office building screaming. There's so many limits on range of motion or emotion that you can show in front of your boss or other coworkers, and especially this depends on uh, the formal environment. If it's a very formal work environment, that range is entirely um, restrictive. But if it's a more open office environment, like if it's a startup environment, for example, it might be, you might be able to wear sweatpants and a hoodie. Who knows? Whereas if you're a lawyer, you might have to wear a typical suit and tie attire or, and you would never be allowed to go to a happy hour at work. I mean, depending on where you were a lawyer at, but still. So now it's time for the prompts. Um, close to the end of our episode here. So uh, for our first prompt, um, before we begin, I just want to state how it would be cool to frame these prompts, is if uh, you want to play along at home and provide uh, more details about how uh, you you responded to these prompts, I think it would be really cool to create a discussion group going. I can go in a little bit more detail uh, I'm going to have an update on how I responded to the prompts just to give you better ideas because sometimes I know certain prompts can throw me totally for a loop when I hear the prompts, but if I hear certain examples of responses, I get a little bit better. But for the most part, they're going to be general updates, so I can go into further detail if you guys comment, and it would be lovely to get this creative writing community going where we can kind of dare each other to keep on writing our chapters and just hear a lot of about the cool stories we can, all can create. So. That's the uh, the goal for this uh, podcasting community. So the actual prompt is, write a scene that fleshes out a social convention or a core societal belief through the interactions of your characters. What is expected of them in this interaction? So even though there's a lot of big world ideas at play, it's, uh, a, I assume in my eyes, it's a general prompt. Uh, and I believe those provide more freedom Personally, I like to turn a lot of prompts on their head. So, for example, you might think that this is like very socially constrained Jane Austen-ish prompt, but you could have a fight scene. Uh, there's this one creative writing class where, I had a, where uh, this writer used to have fight scenes that would tell a uh, backstory about certain, uh, based on like certain moves that characters would make or certain details that characters would notice during the fight. And that was a good way for getting uh, situated with backstory and basic social conventions. It would be very good to bring in also etiquette, too, with reasons for why they're doing the fight. Maybe this is like a vengeance-type society. Uh, Who knows with that? Or you could uh, kind of turn the prompt over by doing something completely, uh, writing about something completely odd, like exchanging dirt for food, and having characters be like, oh man, I didn't get as much dirt as I wanted, just talking about it as if it were completely normal. 
and then the reader gets gently situated about why it's normal, what's, uh, how the characters view this completely odd society, like, uh, feature of their society, um, and what it adds to their society as a whole. And you can really, uh, flesh that out with, like, seemingly everyday conversation. Because, I mean, even people talking about, like, water cooler type stuff, like, yeah, the bus was late, oh man, transportation in the city, you could get talking, the more you talk about complaining or just basic interactions with their society, it's about how people essentially are moving in the world around them. And for a reader, especially uh, a reader that might not be familiar with, like, a fantasy society or a futuristic society, or even a regular society, you don't know where the character is, and you can't really get too good of a social sense until you understand how they move around in society. So, really works for any type of genre. So, please post uh, any response. Um, you can even post your prompts. I'd love to, um, a response to the prompts, I'd love to read them. Even if you feel comfortable, post general details about your prompts. It would be really cool to have this community going and be le- more than a figment of my imagination. So, thank you for listening, and we'll see you in, or uh, you'll hear me, in episode two.